This is episode number 70 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. This episode is brought to you by Willow at Home, an online video series to help you strengthen and condition your core and pelvic floor. It contains three unique classes combining yoga, Pilates, and bodyweight exercises. If you're preparing for childbirth, recovering postpartum, or want to improve symptoms of bladder leakage, pelvic organ prolapse, or diastasis recti, this series is for you. This class is available in person in my own community and was created by Stephanie Reynolds, a yoga instructor and owner of the Willow Studio. I often recommend these classes to my own physiotherapy clients, and you'll notice I'm demonstrating the prenatal exercise option in the videos, which was a lot of fun, since I loved doing these classes in person during my own pregnancy. Stephanie has generously given Two Birth and Beyond podcast listeners 30% off with the code Two Birth and Beyond. For direct links and details, check out the show notes for this episode at twobirthandbeyond.com forward slash podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell. And Anita Lambert. And we're both really excited today to have on our special guest, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In our new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. So welcome and thank you so much for coming on, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I know we're excited to dive in to talk about your new book um, and also the information you provide about menstrual cycle fertility, but I'm also excited to talk about the awareness method and the two sides to it. So for those listening who may be trying to get pregnant, but then also those wanting to use it as a method of birth control. So we love hearing why people have gone into their area of expertise. So for those who haven't checked out your book yet, um, what motivated you to dive into this area of research around the menstrual cycle and fertility? Well, my experience I think is a bit unique because I discovered the fertility awareness method when I was about 18 or 19 years old. So it was right out of high school, first year of university. Um, I had been put on the pill when I was about 15, 16, like a lot of women. I had heavy 
painful periods and I was really big into sports. And so I didn't know what to do. I went to the doctor's office looking for a prescription for the pill. Unfortunately, I only had to say like four words and the doctor was already writing the script, right? Um, but because I wasn't using it for birth control at the time, um, you know, I'd go off it periodically to see if my cycle was different and it never was. It was either the same or worse than it was before. So I had this keen awareness that it wasn't fixing the cycle. And when I did need birth control, because I was always a nerd, I had read the whole pamphlet about the pill. And it says you have to take it the same time every day. And if not, you have to take two pills the next day or whatever the protocols are. And I just remember feeling like I would always be nervous because I wasn't that good about doing the thing at the same time every day. And I thought to myself, okay, so if I'm on the pill, I'm going to use condoms anyways. I was also a little bit concerned about my future fertility. There was members of my family who had fertility challenges. Um, in the book, I talk about my mom's experience. She had fibroids that just got progressively worse and her periods were unbearable to the point that her doctor recommended a hysterectomy. And I just didn't want that to be my future. So I was like, well, okay, so if I'm going to use condoms and I don't really think this pill thing is helping with my period problems, then I'm just going to skip the pill thing and do condoms. And around that time, I discovered fertility awareness. And so it really changed my outlook on everything. Until that point, I, like most women that I know, had been taught that you could get pregnant on every day of your cycle. So I was kind of just afraid all the time, uh, thinking that if I ever had sex, I would definitely get pregnant regardless of when. And it was only when I discovered fertility awareness that I learned that there's only a short window of fertility. So there's actually about a six-day window in your cycle when you can get pregnant and by avoiding unprotected sex on during that fertile window plus a buffer period when you're using the method you can effectively prevent pregnancy without hormones so for me that was really empowering it changed everything but along the way I also learned through my own health challenges that the menstrual cycle reflects back your overall health so when I first started charting I was in my like post high school feminist phase and I was learning all this cool stuff and I was charting my cycles and my cycles were not normal or healthy they were really long they were 45 to 50 days sometimes and um, unbeknownst to me my temperatures were too low they were out of the normal range but because I had learned to chart among certified fertility awareness educators so I had learned to chart and learned to teach among women who specialized in this knowledge and I remember my charting instructor looked at my charts and she's like uh, yeah Lisa your temperatures are too low your cycles are too long. I think you should go and get screened for thyroid. And it blew my mind that my instructor could look at my chart and kind of make a connection to a possible health issue. So it turned out that I did have a subclinical thyroid issue. And as I addressed that and other lifestyle factors, I was able to change my experience of periods. So these days, my cycles are within the normal range, typically like that 31 to 32 day range is what's typical for me. Um, no pain, no debilitate. My pain was debilitating. I've had two children now. And I can tell you that the, the regular typical pain that I experienced in my period over those years was worse than the first couple stages of labor to the point that I didn't even believe I was in labor. I was like, this can't be labor. <laughs> my period pain hurts more than this. Um, so over the years, I mean, as you can see, discovering it at such a young age and having those personal experiences, um, really, that was the impetus for me training and specializing in this area. And you know, when I, so kind of like 10 plus years into my journey of charting, so I had used fertility awareness for birth control my entire 20s. Eventually I got married and 
as I mentioned, he moved across the country, <laughs> the guy. Um, so eventually we were ready to start our family. And it was around that time that I realized so many women are struggling with fertility challenges. And even though I had been immersed in this information all these years, the average woman today, as you know, still has no idea how her cycle works. So that is what really continues to propel and just ignite my passion for this because it's crazy to think that I've been doing this almost 20 years, but very little in the grand scheme of things has changed for the average woman. Yes. Wow. So true. What you just said there. I am, I love hearing about your story. I love that you found the fertility awareness method so early on because I just think that maybe that's how it should be more often for people. And that's how I want it to be for my daughter. I was on the pill from, gosh, like you said, 15 or 16 until 25 maybe. And I had no idea how my cycle worked until like even after that, when I was trying to figure out my cycle after getting off the pill for so long and having such issues with that. It is just really interesting to me that it is something that is innately within our bodies if we're a female body and we don't know much about it whatsoever. And I'm also particularly interested in talking with you about this because for me now, we're done having more babies. I had my tubes removed on my last C-section. So by all accounts and purposes, I could just be like, well, doesn't matter now. Don't have to pay attention to that menstrual cycle because I'm not trying to get pregnant. It could just be whatever it is and that would be fine. But as you say, it is a vital sign of our health. So for you, what is a vital sign and why should we consider the menstrual cycle as one of our vital signs? Mm -hmm. um, well, I love talking about that because especially in our culture, we don't, we're not really given a lot of positive messages about periods and the idea very much so is that we don't really need to have periods unless we're trying to get pregnant. Um, but as women, one of the, I am full of analogies. One of the analogies I like to share is like, um, we're not, it's not parts sold separately with us. So if I go, if I'm looking to buy a car or something like that, and I go to the dealership, I can choose to have air conditioning or not. If I have air conditioning, it doesn't change the function of the engine or anything. <laughs> it just changes whether I have air conditioning or not. And somehow we think that that's how our cycles are except that we came this way. This is how we were created. And so when you, you know, interfere with the cycle, shut down the cycle, it has an impact in our overall health in a way beyond just having our ability to have babies. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of like the, the preface. But a vital sign basically is a bodily sign that gives us information about how our overall body is functioning. And the most common vital signs that we're most familiar with would be our body temperature, our heart rate, respiratory rate, how many beats that we take, how many um, breaths that we take each minute, as well as our blood pressure. And all of us have a general sense that there is a normal range. So if you go to the doctor, the doctor could tell you what the normal range is for all of those signs. And if the doctor were to take a measure of any of those signs, if you were kind of too high or too low, then not only would it tell the doctor that there's something wrong in real time, but it would also give a specific roadmap for the doctor to know where to look. So it, it gives you information, not like you can make a confirmed diagnosis, but you can really have a sense of what is possibly going on. And the menstrual cycle works in very much the same way, which is really interesting. A lot of us think of the menstrual cycle as only the period because 
it's blood and so it's more obvious and that's like the most outward part of our cycles that we're all familiar with uh but when i'm talking about the menstrual cycle i mean what happens like your period but also what happens in between your period so it's not just like you have your period fast forward fast forward and then you have another one we're talking about the whole thing um so for instance in to kind of take you through the menstrual cycle the first day of your cycle is the first day of your period and then you would expect to have a period that lasts anywhere from about three to seven days um, once your period is finished you would start approaching ovulation so that's the first half of your cycle the pre-ovulatory phase at some point you would start producing cervical mucus as we'll probably talk about <laughs> um, quite a bit but cervical fluid it can look either like creamy white hand lotion it can look like clear, stretchy, kind of like raw egg whites, but you essentially produce mucus for about two to seven days before ovulation. In a healthy cycle, you ovulate. It's really important. Without ovulation, you don't have a true menstrual period. So then once you ovulate, you go into the second half of your cycle, your post-ovulatory phase, and you would expect to have your period about two weeks later. So the post-ovulatory phase lasts about 12 to 14 days. Um, so it's either you have your period or you are pregnant. So those are the, the two options. Um, and within that cycle, the first half of it is most variable. So when a woman has a longer cycle or a shorter cycle, it's because her ovulation was likely delayed or perhaps she ovulated a bit sooner. So overall, that healthy cycle falls within the range of about 24 to 35 days. So when I took you through that whole cycle, there's obviously a lot more going on there than just your period. And so when we think about the cycle and those different aspects of it, we can get a lot of information by the quality of your period. Is it too heavy? Is it too light? Is it painful? That can give us specific health information. Are you bleeding throughout your cycle? Are you not? That can give us specific health information. Do you have cervical mucus? You know, do you never have it? Do you have it every day? That can give us information about your health, the health of your cervix, if you potentially have an infection or something like yeast or something like that. Um, how long is your post-ovulatory phase, you know, is it too short? Are you spotting, you know? So when you look at and kind of dissect all the different parts of the cycle, you can really um, start to appreciate that it's more than just about having babies. And a, a really good example of that would be a condition like hypothalamic amenorrhea, for example. So that's a condition where women stop ovulating. So they stop menstruating for a period of time. So typically a period of six months or more when they're not ovulating. And that is a result of essentially in order to ovulate, your brain has to talk to your ovaries. So your hypothalamus has to send a message to your ovaries. And for whatever reason in that condition, the ovaries are not responsive. So there's a break in that communication. So with hypothalamic amenorrhea, we are most familiar with that in the case of athletes or women who are doing a combination of overexercise, under eating, or under extreme stress. And what's interesting is that women who uh, experience that condition are at an increased lifetime risk for developing osteoporosis. <laughs> Right? So if you go six months to a year without having a period as a result of this condition, it can actually increase how rapidly you lose bone. Like you can actually experience rapid bone loss. And so bone loss has nothing to do with your ability to have children. So I like to use that example just to illustrate that your menstrual cycle is more than just about having children. And as, as women of reproductive age, it's a really helpful way to be able to gauge our health because a healthy body is a fertile body. So a reproductive age woman should be having normal menstrual cycles. That's just how this works. Yeah, I love how you um, explained the whole cycle. Because I agree, I think when most 
people do talk about, they talk just about the, the period part versus the whole cycle. Um, are there reasons, you mentioned about kind of ovulation and the importance of that. And if you're even not trying to conceive, what would be like a lot of the different important reasons that we should become familiar with the ovulation part of our cycle? Well, I think um, it's helpful to know that without ovulation, you don't have a cycle. So for example, I talk a lot about the birth control pill because it's kind of like the reverse of having a cycle. Um, one of the myths about the pill is that it regulates your cycle or that you can continue having a cycle while you're on it. And a lot of women would say, oh, I have my period this month when they're on the pill. <laughs> so unfortunately or fortunately, um, when you're on the pill, you don't have a period. What you have, so if you take your pill for the 21 days and then you take your seven day sugar pills or you use the, you know, the patch or the, the ring or whatever the birth control method is, excuse me, when you stop taking that artificial hormone for a couple of days, it, you have what's called a withdrawal bleed. So it's not actually your period. And when the creators of the pill designed it, the, the first iteration of the pill, they didn't have the withdrawal bleed. But because this was in like the late 50s, there was no precedent for this. So the women who first took that first pill and didn't, they just lost their periods. They stopped bleeding. They thought they were pregnant. And some of these women were actually trying to get pregnant because they were trying to kickstart the cycle for some of these women who were struggling with fertility problems. So some of them legitimately were so excited that they were pregnant. And then it took them a while to figure out that they weren't pregnant and they were devastated. It was this big problem. So from the start, the pill makers added in the fake bleed to make us all think that we're having our periods. So even just <laughs> having that basic understanding, first of all, that if you're not ovulating, you're not having a cycle. If you're on the pill, you're not actually having um, a true cycle. So, you know, why is it important? Why does it matter for us to ovulate and have menstrual cycles? Um, well, if you're not ovulating, you're not producing the optimal amounts of your normal reproductive hormones. So it's on a, a lot of our radars these days about healthy eating and, you know, supporting hormone development and avoiding endocrine disruptors and avoiding pesticides and chemicals. A lot of us are looking into eating organic at least some of the time. We're looking into buying meat that doesn't have the hormones in it and all those types of things. Looking into natural care products so that we're not disrupting our hormones while taking birth control. <laughs> so birth control is like the atom bomb of xenoestrogen. So when you eat lettuce that has been sprayed with pesticides, the person didn't design the pesticide to stop your menstrual cycle. <laughs> when you take the pill, right, or any other type of hormonal birth control that suppresses it, it was designed to suppress your ovulation. And it had like there's a reason for that. If you don't suppress the ovulation, it wouldn't be a very effective method of birth control. <laughs> but um, so first, of, first and foremost, ovulation is how you make your main reproductive hormones. So as you approach ovulation, your ovaries are producing estrogen. After ovulation, your uh, ovaries are producing progesterone. And if you're not ovulating, you're not producing those natural hormones. And in a healthy cycle, the average length of a healthy cycle falls around about 29 days. So from that perspective, you would expect to have, you know, estrogen for the first half predominantly, and then progesterone for the second half predominantly. And estrogen and progesterone play very different roles. So we all hear about estrogen dominance. We know there's certain conditions that are exacerbated by excess estrogen, like cancer. And if you look at estrogen and progesterone, so estrogen is a hormone that causes cell proliferation. So for example, at the beginning of your cycle, estrogen is what stimulates your uterine lining to grow and thicken so that you have a period. But in the second half of the cycle, progesterone initially causes some cell proliferation, but then causes cell maturation. So estrogen, you know, 
grows all the cells, progesterone tells it what to do. <laughs> you know, um, if, if the cells are kind of going out of control, progesterone takes care of that and kind of sorts all of that out. So not having a regular cycle can affect your chances of getting certain types of cancer, like endometrial and breast cancer. Um, not having a regular cycle, as I already mentioned, can affect your bone development. So um, even as young women, as we are in our teens and in our early 20s, you don't, what the research shows us is that we don't reach our peak bone mass, so the total density of our bones in our body until we're potentially in our 30s and even into our 40s. And when you're not having a, a regular ovulatory cycle, you are interfering with your body's ability to fully develop your bone, uh, your bones. So there's research that shows that when women are put on the pill when they're 15, that they potentially never reach that peak bone mass because they're not ovulating on the pill. And we're told that, oh, the pill has estrogen and progesterone, but it has synthetic estrogens and progestins. It's not the same as what we produce. Um, and just another piece of information, you know, in addition to our, our bone health, there's evidence to show that estrogen and progesterone are also important in our uh, heart health and our breast health. And so uh, it's, it's helpful to kind of get our minds outside of the only periods only matter when we're trying to have a baby and recognize that this cycle that we have is actually intertwined with our other um, many other normal healthy bodily functions yeah Whew, it's fascinating stuff and just such necessary education so thank you for that well, let's just say it one more time to be clear if you are on the birth control pill you are not ovulating correct correct i mean what I can say is that we know that there are different types of birth control methods. So there's a lot of different pills. There's, I mentioned the ring and the patch, there's the shot, um, there's the implant and the hormonal IUD. And so some of the progestin only options do permit ovulation occasionally. So some, there are some types of birth control where uh, women may either not ovulate, ovulate sporadically or continue to ovulate. Um, so there's three main ways that hormonal birth control works. The majority of the birth control that we take contains both, like the synthetic estrogen and progestins, and they act primarily by suppressing ovulation. Um, but they also have the effect of preventing us from producing fertile quality cervical mucus. So they, um, our cervix, it basically fills with a mucus plug and the sperm can't get through, which is helpful if you're not trying to get pregnant, right? Um, but also the third kind of main way that these birth control options work is by thinning the uterine lining. So even if a sperm were to make its way through, it's very unlikely that it would have anywhere to implant because the lining is too thin. So just to put it out there, because I know that there's at least one listener that's going to be like, but what about the hormonal IUD? I heard that I can still ovulate. So some women continue ovulating, some women ovulate sporadically, and some women don't ovulate while taking it. Okay, perfect. So let's continue on this theme of hormonal contraceptives. Can they impact our fertility? How so? Um, well, I mean, from a, just when you're taking it, it prevents you from getting pregnant. So we, we kind of talked about that. So while you're on it, obviously, it does have an effect on your fertility. And so uh, when you look at the research, what the kind of consistent message is that it has a temporary effect. It's not permanent. It's reversible. So I think what's missing from the conversation is there, you know, when a woman comes off birth control, there is a period of transition. 
So when you shut down ovarian function, it makes logical sense. If you, if you're, you know, we're just chatting, having conversation about it. It makes logical sense that if you shut down a, a part of your bodily function for a while, that it could take a little bit of time for it to kind of bounce back. That would make sense. But that part is what's missing from the conversation. So when you take hormonal birth control, particularly long term, we do know that there's a few different effects on fertility. And so there's a couple different ways that it can be looked at. So one of the ways it's looked at in the research would be how long it takes for your cycles to return normally. Uh, so, you know, before your ovulation's happening normally, your cycle length is normal, all those types of things. Um, another type of study looks at how long it takes women to get pregnant when they come off. Um, and then uh, I'm trying to think of, um, I think those are the main ways. The other one might come to me. I think I'm having like a moment. Um, but what's interesting is that when you, if you've taken birth control, particularly long-term, and in the studies long-term is typically two years or more, it, it, what the research tells us is that it takes an average of about nine to 12 menstrual cycles before your cycles fully return to normal. So there, there was one study that I looked at where they had a group of women who had never taken any hormones, and then they had a group of women who had used birth control. And so the control group, basically, the ones that never took the hormones, they looked at their cycles. And when the women came off birth control, it took that about nine to 12 cycles before you couldn't really tell the difference between the two groups. So for instance, when you come off of birth control, what is typical is that um, for some women, it takes longer for their periods to return at all. So it, first of, that first variable is how long is it going to take you to start ovulating again? So some women come off birth control and they start ovulating right away, whereas other women, it might take several months before they actually ovulate and have their first period afterwards. Um, but when you first start getting those cycles, your first cycles off the pill typically are not um, falling completely within normal range. So often ovulation is a bit delayed, meaning that you might have longer cycles at first. And um, a lot of women notice that they have less cervical fluid, especially in the first couple cycles off um, birth control. So in a healthy cycle, you'd expect to have two to seven days of cervical mucus prior to your ovulation. I've worked with a number of women who come off the pill and for the first couple cycles see very little or none. Uh, just because it takes the cervix a bit of time to recover and start producing fertile quality uh, cervical mucus again. Because when you're on the pill, the cervix is actively prevented from producing any of that. You don't see any fertile quality cervical mucus when you're on it. Um, and then I think another really important factor related to fertility is that when you come off the pill, the first several cycles off the pill, if you look at the second half, the luteal phase, so between ovulation and your period, in a healthy cycle, it's, it's 12 to 14 days. And that's important for fertility because when you're trying to get pregnant, what happens is <laughs> you produce the mucus before you ovulate. The sperm can live in the mucus up to five days, which is why your days of mucus are your fertile days. When you ovulate, let's say you successfully conceive. So, you know, egg and sperm meet, and then they meet inside of your fallopian tubes. So the embryo starts um, dividing and, you know, growing, and it takes about a week or so for the egg to make it through your fallopian tube and then get into your uterine lining. And there's a short window of your cycle where the uterine lining is receptive to implantation. And so the process of, so it takes about a week for the, the egg to get to the uterus, and then it takes about a week for the, the fertilized egg to implant. So if you come off the pill 
and it's not uncommon for the first couple cycles for that second half of the cycle to be say eight days or nine days, then by the time that egg is trying to implant, you're already bleeding. So it, it's not happening. So that, what that means, so that's kind of looking at the cycle parameters. When they look at the actual time to pregnancy studies, so when they actually take women on different types of birth control, so they have women coming off the pill, women coming off the IUD, women coming off the shot, and they look at how long it takes them to get pregnant. If you compare a woman who's not using hormonal methods, so she's using condoms or whatever, and then she stops <laughs> versus the woman who was on the pill and then she stops, it typically takes about twice as long for her to conceive. So where an average healthy couple, it takes an average of about four months to conceive. Off the pill, it can take an average of about eight months to conceive. The shot is the worst offender. So the research shows that it's more like 18 months, a year and a half. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of different in between. But what this means for women, and I think you, you can both appreciate this, as women, we're not really taught a lot about the pill. And I've worked with a lot of women who have gone to their doctors, so they know they're getting married, or they know they're planning for a baby. They know they've been on the pill for a long time. And often their intuition, their own feeling is like, I've been on this thing for so long, I don't even know what my cycles are like. Should I come off of it early so that I can get pregnant? And a lot of women, not only do they have that intuitive sense, but they actually make an appointment and go to their doctor. And I've, ha I've heard it time and time again, where the doctors are like, no, there's no point in going off of it early. Just wait until you're ready to have a baby and just go off of it then. Um, but what the research tells us is that there is a period of temporary subfertility post pill. And it takes anywhere from six to 12 months or more for the cycles to even begin normalizing. Um, and so uh, just picture the woman who I mean, we're, as women, we're pretty smart cookies. We're trying to plan our lives. We're trying to get it all right. We are, especially being very responsible by going on the pill, we wait until the stars are aligned, right? We, we try to wait until we've got the relationship, the job, the home, everything kind of set up. And it's, as women too, we switch from avoiding to trying quite quickly. So you're cool, like the first month that you try. <laughs> Because you're like, yeah, well, you know, I was on the pill for a while. It's totally fine. By the second month, you're starting to freak out a little bit. I mean, to be honest, you, we know this. Uh, so if we don't know that it, it, there's this period of transition and we don't plan for it, then you could already be at the fertility clinic looking into significant fertility treatments and things like that within the first year of coming off the pill when that is literally when your body is starting to normalize. So um, I'll kind of stop because I obviously have a lot to say about this topic, but there's, this is a, I, I feel like this is a really big problem for women if we're not educated about just the fact that there is a delay in the return of our normal fertility post pill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's so important for people to hear about the pill because I think there is, there's a lot of information um, out there around it, like you mentioned in terms of just saying just go off and then, you know, if you want to start trying then things should happen sooner. So it's good to know there is that period of time. Um, can you share what is the fertility, like what is fertility awareness and then the three main signs of fertility? Because I found your book very interesting and like so much information. So like really, really helpful. So, and I know we've actually had a couple of listeners ask about fertility awareness. So I know people are curious about this. Mm -hmm. Well, fertility awareness um, in the most basic sense is understanding 
what happens in your menstrual cycle and being, uh, being able to identify which days of your cycle are fertile versus which days are not. And then you can take that knowledge and apply it however you want. So for some women, they want to get pregnant. So they're going to want to figure out which days are fertile so they can optimize their chances of getting pregnant. And for other women, they don't want to get pregnant and they don't want to use a hormonal method. So they're wanting to figure out which days are fertile so they can avoid unprotected sex on those days and actually use it for birth control. And, you know, in addition to that, some women just want to understand their cycles and the connection to their overall health. So some women chart their cycles just for that general understanding. Um, and the three main fertile signs that we would pay attention to are your cervical mucus, your basal body temperature, and your cervical position. And so cervical mucus, we've talked a little bit about, you produce cervical mucus as you approach ovulation, and you produce it in response to the rising estrogen levels. So as you approach ovulation, your ovaries are busy preparing the eggs for ovulation, and at, you know, as they're doing that, your ovaries are releasing all this estrogen. So as your estrogen levels rise, that's what triggers your cervix to start making this fluid. A lot of women have seen this, but potentially didn't know what it was because we're not taught about it. Uh, so, you know, it looks often like creamy white hand lotion, and you might notice it when you're going to the bathroom, or you might see it in your underwear, and it, it may also look like clear, raw, stretchy egg whites. So, um, and for some women, they don't necessarily have so much of it that they can stretch this clear, you know, step between their fingers, but they may notice that when they're going to the bathroom, it's like really slippery, lubricative. So, you know, for some women, they may have noticed it if you've ever had that situation where you feel like wetness and you're like, oh my God, I got my period. <laughs> and then you run to the bathroom and there's no period. So, you know, for many women, that may have been their mucus on a fertile day and they just didn't know. Uh, for other women, they legit thought they had an infection because they had this discharge, like this weird, clear, stretchy stuff. What's going on here? And they go to their doctor and get tested for, you know, STIs and things like that. So um, many went, and it's interesting, I've spoken to a number of women who that was the case for them. They actually thought they had a recurrent infection, only later to figure out that it was their mucus. Can I just interrupt you for one second? I hear from lots of my clients, too, that they thought they were leaking urine. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Because I mean, it depends on what your how you experience your fertile window, but it can legitimately be quite wet. Um, uh, given that you have cervical mucus coming out of you for a couple of days. Um, and other women might just notice that there's certain times of the cycle where you go to the bathroom and it's like, you go to wipe yourself and it's just like, whoa, like it's really slippery. Or it just feels like you have to wipe a few times before it really feels like it's gone. And I think it's helpful just to talk about that because I think a lot of women I know even for me, I didn't know it at the time, but when I think back to my teenage years, I remember there was a point at which it just felt like I was wet sometimes. And I remember asking my mom about it and she just bought me panty liners. And that was like the end of that discussion. And um, it just felt kind of weird sometimes. And I didn't know what it was. Like imagine in my imaginatory um, or alternative universe, if we just told women about like young girls, uh, there's often kind of like this, like, should we tell young women about fertility awareness, this fear that they're going to go and use it for birth control when they're 12 or something like that. Uh, but I firmly believe that as young women, we can educate them about their bodies and it, it obviously in an age appropriate way. But just imagine for a minute, if we taught young women about their, uh, their cervical fluid, we learn about our periods, but cervical fluid is related to ovulation and ovulation is kind of like a superpower. I mean, that's how we make our hormones. That's how babies are made. It's really, we could really educate young women about this in a fun and um, 
refreshing type of way. But just imagine if someone had told you about cervical mucus before your first period, you could have actually noticed it before. So instead of like having that experience of you have your period and maybe no one talked to you about it and you feel kind of a certain type of way about it, you could have the experience where you run and mommy, I saw my cervical mucus today. I think I'm going to have my period soon and like know that you're having your period even before your first one. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's so refreshing to think about. Yeah. And I actually know um, a few just because we're in a different time now, right? But I know a couple of people who've done that with their daughters and literally had that exact experience of like, wow, mom, I saw this, I saw my cervical mucus. I think my, my period's coming soon. And then, you know, two weeks later, she gets her first period. And this is how life could be like if we just knew about um, how our bodies work. Uh, so cervical mucus, I mean, when you're looking to check it for someone who's listening and is just kind of wanting to sensitize themselves to it. So if you're on the pill, you're not going to see cervical fluid. Um, but if you're not on the pill, and you're cycling naturally, one of the ways just to start paying attention to it is, uh, you know, you go into the bathroom throughout the day anyways. I didn't have to tell you to wipe yourself. You're already wiping. So you can just kind of pay attention and see if at different times of the cycle, if you actually notice that it feels like there's something there, if you notice something in your underwear, or even if you just notice feeling a bit like there's something there, kind of go and check to see if there's mucus. So you can kind of get into the habit of doing that. Uh, So you produce mucus before ovulation. And I mentioned that we care about mucus because it keeps sperm alive for up to five days. So basically any day that you see cervical mucus is a fertile day. Uh, And one of my favorite examples of that is, you know, if you see your cervical fluid on Monday and you have sex on Monday um, and then you ovulate on Friday, you can get pregnant on Friday because of the sex you had on Monday. Because when you had the sex on Monday, your cervical fluid drew the sperm into your cervical crypts and your cervix, your cervix has kind of like these little folds that are like holding cells for sperm. And uh, it literally, they, the, the research shows us that the sperm can live for up to five days in our fluid. So you could quite literally have sex on Monday, ovulate on Friday and get pregnant on Friday because of the sex that you had on Monday. Um, so when you're trying to avoid pregnancy, it's really important to know that, <laughs> uh, because then that helps you to understand which days of your cycle are fertile and which days are not. And when you're trying to conceive, it's really important to break the myth that the only day that you can get pregnant is ovulation day, because it's not true. Um, the best time to have sex is on the days that you see your mucus. Um, and then after you ovulate, your mucus typically dries up in a healthy cycles. So, um, that's the first sign. And then basal body temperature, a lot of us have heard of that. It's if you take your temperature first thing in the morning before you get out of bed and your temperature doesn't predict ovulation. It doesn't help you to really know anything ahead of time. But after you ovulate, your temperature goes up as a result of your progesterone production. So um, taking your temperature is really helpful to pinpoint when you did ovulate in your cycle. And then your cervical position, the third sign, it's an optional sign. Not every woman who charts her cycles uh, checks her cervical position, but um, similar to your mucus, the cervix is responsive to estrogen and progesterone. So in, as you approach ovulation, when you're in your fertile window, your uh, estrogen stimulates the cervix to soften. It goes to a higher position inside of your vagina 
so checking your cervical position involves you actually inserting a finger into your vagina and finding out like where is it how high is it how soft is it um does it feel open so if it's open you might feel like a dimple if it's closed it'll feel more like the end of your nose uh, and then after ovulation it goes back down to this low firm and closed position so uh, really fascinating stuff but there's all these physical ways that you can identify when you're fertile in your cycle and when you're not and there's a lot of science behind it so for women who really do want to use this as a birth control method uh, there's research that shows that when you use the method effectively so symptothermal so doing the cervical position cervical mucus and the temperature uh, it's been shown to be up to 99.4 percent effective putting it right up there with the pill in terms of effectiveness yeah so I was curious because I really liked how you explained this in the book because I think some people think fertility the fertility awareness kind of method is the same as the rhythm method so I was wondering if you can explain the difference because there definitely is yeah, yeah yeah no that's it's it's interesting as a fertility awareness educator so in my from my perspective I'm like how can we still be there but since the average woman has no idea about this there's still that myth so with the rhythm method the rhythm method is essentially based on mathematical calculations and it's based on the idea that the menstrual cycle is about the same length every time and the thought behind it is that if you track your cycles for several months so let's say you you know you track your cycles for six months you'll be able to see what usually happens and you'll be able to calculate when ovulation happens and based on that calculation you'll be able to predict ahead of time when you'll be fertile and it kind of avoid sex on those days. So it's, it's based on the math and the idea that you can predict ovulation. But since I've been in this field for almost two decades and I've worked with, you know, hundreds of women, seen thousands of charts over the years, what I can tell you is that the one thing all women have in common is some degree of cycle fluctuation. And so when you look at the menstrual cycle, uh, the pre-ovulatory phase, so before ovulation, is the most variable. And what that means is that if, even if you have the most quote-unquote regular cycles and your cycles are usually a certain length, it is still possible for you to have an early ovulation or a later ovulation in any given cycle uh, because it, it, your cycle can vary based on stress, based on different health issues, just all different kinds of things. And you wouldn't have a heads up in advance. So what's different between the rhythm method and fertility awareness is that with fertility awareness, you are giving up the idea that you can predict ovulation in advance, and it's not necessary for you to predict ovulation. What you're doing is you are paying attention to your actual physical signs of fertility on a day-to-day -day basis, and you are making a decision on that day whether you are fertile or not based on what you see. So with the method that I teach, we're looking specifically um, at cervical mucus first and foremost, because like I mentioned, it can keep the sperm alive for up to five days. So essentially you're learning to check your signs on a day-to-day -day basis, which sounds like a lot of work, but as I mentioned already, everyone who's listening to this has gone to the bathroom at least once today. And when you did, you, you wiped yourself. So what I'm suggesting and what I teach, you know, my clients to do is just to, you know, you're consciously wiping. So you're going to the bathroom, but you're actually paying attention to what you're, excuse me, what you're seeing. And uh, you're, you're gauging. So literally on a day-to-day -day basis, it's like, did I see mucus or not, you know, and if so, then I'm going to consider it a fertile day pre-ovulatory. So as you approach ovulation, you know, every day that you see mucus, whether it's the lotion-y stuff or the raw, you know, stretchy egg whites, I know some women listening, um, there's a lot of information about fertility awareness floating around and a lot of women, you know, don't really know that the, the lotion-y type, so the, the type that looks like hand lotion is also fertile, but yes, it is. <laughs> you can have pregnant on, you can have pregnant, you can have sex on a day where you see the lotion-y type mucus and get 
pregnant when you ovulate because the uh, the mucus can keep sperm alive for up to five days. So, so anyways, um, so that is the main difference. So when you're paying attention to the signs, the analogy that I use in the book, which is one that one of my mentors uses, which I love, is that with the rhythm method, it's like the weather forecast. <laughs> so it's like the weatherman said it's going to rain on Tuesday and you're going to make your decision of what to wear based on that, although it could rain on Wednesday. <laughs> And then you're just not going to be wearing the right clothes or you could walk outside and see is it raining or not. <laughs> and so that's what the fertility awareness method is. And that's why the rhythm method isn't an effective method of birth control for the majority of women, because, you know, um, there was one study that I looked at where they actually measured the menstrual cycles of a ridiculous number of women, a couple thousand women. And there was only a small percentage of those women that had cycles regular enough that they could even think about using the rhythm method. Uh, so it doesn't work for the majority of us. And especially uh, there's certain periods of our lives where our cycles are going to be more variable. So for instance, right after you get your first period, the first several years are known to be a little bit more, the, the, the length of the cycle fluctuates a bit more. Um, when you're approaching menopause, the 10 years before your last period are typically, you'll see more fluctuations. You might see your cycle shorten a bit, you know, they'll be a little shorter, ovulate earlier in the cycle type of thing. Um, but also a lot of women take hormonal birth control. I did, you know, a lot of us have used it at various points in our lives. And when you come off birth control, uh, it's a period of time of transition, as we talked about. And so there's so if I were to recommend something for a woman who's thinking about a non-hormonal method and this is all interesting to her, I would say like, no, you want to use fertility awareness. But um, even women who use fertility awareness and understand it, I think it's really easy for us to still what I implore, what I call uh, fertility um, rhythm method thinking. So you can start charting and kind of understand that your cycle can vary, but you still get into that like, well, I usually ovulate on day 17. You can still get into that mentality and that can interfere with your success with using fertility awareness. Mm -hmm. No, I think that was a great, great comparison between them because I think sometimes they, some people think of them as the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I loved like, you know, going through your book, I think there's so much in-depth information, like what we cover today, but even more in-depth than how to chart and all that. So if kind of, if our listeners could take away one thing from your book, um, what, what would that be? What would you want them to know? Um, that's a good question. I think, I mean, the main message is that your menstrual cycle is important for overall health, not just when you're trying to make babies. Um, and I mean, as an extension of that as well, it empowers you to be able to make the informed decisions that are really important to us as women, I mean, um, even for women who are actively avoiding pregnancy right now, we typically want to have the option and ability to have babies when we're ready. Um, so if we don't understand our menstrual cycles and don't recognize that they're related to health and that we can also have an effect on them, I mean, there's so, there's so many of us that kind of end up in that situation where something's wrong with our cycles potentially your health practitioner, your doctor tells you that there's nothing you can do. Um, you're not getting pregnant. You're kind of told that there's not like, we're often given that message that there's nothing we can do to affect it. But if you understand that your cycles are related to your overall health and are actually a reflection of it, it really empowers you. And what happens is when you start charting and you might, you know, often when we start charting, we're looking at this, putting, in a, putting our cycles under a, micro, a microscope. And you might notice that there's a few things that are off. Um, 
what happens with that knowledge is that it empowers you. You realize like, oh, wait a minute. If I drink coffee every day, exercise seven days a week, like don't eat enough food, like, I don't know, whatever I'm doing, if I've got like a raging IBS and, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to keep it under control, then it'll affect my cycle. But that also means that I can actually make changes and improve my health and, and, you know, identify certain things and, and just improve overall what I'm doing. And it will have a specific and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, um, a specific and measurable impact. So that was a long answer. I'm, I tend to be a bit long winded, but I suppose the message is that you really do have a lot more power over your own health and your cycles than you think. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love that you talked about that this should really be taught at a much younger age. I totally agree. Cause I know Justin, I've talked about before and think like thinking back of like, were we even taught anything about her cycle really? Um, that it kind of came bits and pieces from other resources, but I think this would be incredible if this could be more um, taught at a younger age. And so can you let our listeners know how they can find you online um, and about your podcast? Cause you know, I love listening to your podcast as well. So. Well, thank you for that. Um, so the book is the fifth vital sign master your cycles and optimize your fertility. And that is available on Amazon. It's in ebook and paperback. And I just released the audiobook format. I was so happy to get that done. I was a podcaster. I was like, this is going to be easy. It wasn't easy, <laughs> but it is now finished. So yay. Um, and uh, if you, for the listeners who are interested in everything that we talked about today, you can actually read the first chapter for free. So you can head over to the fifth vital sign book.com, which is fun. And as for me, um, I'm at Fertility Friday in a lot of different places. So if you like podcasts, if you search Fertility Friday in your podcast player, you'll find we're over 250 episodes now. So there's quite a bit of listening material there. Um, and then I'm like Instagram, I've been a bit more active there at Fertility Friday and all the places. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on and sharing your expertise. And uh, I know we're going to have a lot of listeners excited that this episode is available. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 